Amen. All right, so let's get into the fun stuff today. We are in our question and answer series, Asking for a Friend. And today uh, we get into, I think it's part nine, might be part ten, I think I've lost track. We're doing questions about gender and sexuality. Uh, questions about sexuality. First of all, I want to give a big shout out to Dwindle for uh, making it happen last week while I was out of town. Can you guys help me honor Dwindle for sharing? Um, loved his transparency, talking about mental health uh, and the things that he's gone through and is currently going through, um, I think it's really important for us to be genuine, for us to be authentic, and for us to, to not be ashamed of our struggles. Uh, all of us have different struggles. None of us has it all together. Uh, and so to be able to be, to be real about that uh, is so powerful because there's so many others who are dealing with those things as well. Uh, and so I'm super grateful for Dwindle taking the helm on those questions. We had a ton of questions come in uh, about mental health, just like we had a ton of questions the week before about creation. So we may end up having to do a part two on both of those. Uh, we'll see exactly where everything goes, but uh, we have not ignored those questions. We have them, and we're going to be finding a format to address them. If it's not here on a Sunday morning, we'll do a video uh, or a blog or something to get to those so that your questions questions are not ignored. Um, just as a quick way of review, uh, today, if you have questions about today's topic, and I anticipate some of you will, uh, you can text those questions in to 662-404-2489. Those questions, or that number will be on the screen throughout our time together today. At the end of our message, uh, Dwindle's going to come up and, and select one of the questions that got texted in, and I will be able to respond to that off the cuff. Uh, and again, if there's a number that get texted in that we can't get to, we'll find a way to, to address those uh, in another format. Just as a way of review, uh, when the Bible speaks clearly, we're going to speak clearly. Uh, there's some things we're going to address today that the Bible speaks clearly about, uh, and we're going to stand on what the Word of God has to say. Uh, secondly, when the Bible gives a principle, I will seek to apply that principle. There are some things we're going to be discussing today that weren't a, weren't a thing uh, back in biblical times, that, that, that were not addressed uh, in biblical times. So number two, when the Bible gives a principle, I will seek to apply that principle. And then thirdly, uh, when the Bible is silent, I'll give you my opinion. Uh, and so when we don't have a biblical principle to speak to. Number three, I will give you my opinion uh, when that needs to be addressed. So all that being said, we've got seven questions to get to today, and I don't think any of these are 30-second answers. Uh, so buckle up, get your notepad out and your pen, and uh, let's begin. Number one, uh, how do we counter the LGBTQ agenda in the culture in a loving way? So we'll just come out guns blazing with a big question. Uh, how does the church respond to everything that is going on? Um, foundational verse for me when it comes to questions like this, when we see something in culture that's contrary to what we see in the word, and we'll get into that and show you what the Bible says here in just a little bit, but just for, for now, take my word for it. Um, what do we do? Well, I, I think John 1.14 gives us such a, a wonderful foundation for how we respond to this. It says this about Jesus. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So he didn't stay up there. He came here to be like us, to be one of us, to experience life that we experience. It says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. How did Jesus come from the father? He came from the father full of grace. Everybody say full of grace. Full of grace. And full of truth. Say full of truth. The temptation that we have in the church, at City Church as well as any church, uh, is to fall into one of two camps. Either we fall into the camp of being gracious and affirming, or we are truthful and unkind. Would you put that answer up there for me? Um, our goal is not to be full of grace or full of truth. The goal is to be both. And there's only one way to do that we got to be full of Jesus. Jesus is full of grace, and he's full of truth. And the easy thing to do is to pick a camp. 
right? The easy thing to do is we're going to be all loving and we're going to love everybody and we're going to affirm everybody and, and we're going to, man, we're going to be the place where everybody feels loved or the easy thing is to be, no, we're standing on the truth and this is what the word says and we don't care who we offend or whose feelings were hurt. This is what we're going to stand on. And, 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 and we like black and white. We don't like nuance. We, we don't like having to discern things. We don't like having to, to deal with complicated issues. So it's easy to just pick a lane. This is where I'm at, or this is where I'm at. And we see churches, we see Christians, we see preachers all over the place picking a lane. And yet we see Jesus come from the Father full of grace, not partially graceful, not 50% gracious, full of grace, 100% grace, and he also comes 100% truth. That's a hard line to walk. In fact... I would say that's an impossible line to walk apart from the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. That is not in our human nature. Our human nature demands one or the other. But Jesus comes from the Father, and he's both. He's not partial truth. He's not watered down truth. He's not a little grace. He's not situational grace. He's not occasional grace. He is fully grace and fully truth. And the only way we can do that is to be full of the Holy Spirit who conforms us into the likeness of Jesus. So before we get into strategies, before we get into to statements, before we get into doctrines or any of that stuff, how do we counter any sort of sinful agenda in the culture, not just this one? Is we better be full of Jesus. Because if we try to counter anything on our own, we will fail. The weapons of this world, world do not work against the weapons of this world. If we try to do it in our flesh, if we try to do it in the natural, if we try to do it through our own reasoning, it's not going to be enough. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you look at it in the natural right now, we're losing this battle. I think one of the reasons why it looks like we're losing the battle is because we're fighting with weapons God didn't design for us to fight with. We're fighting with politics. We're fighting with social media posts. We're fighting with flesh, with our own frustration, our own anger, whatever. And that stuff is never going to defeat the enemy. But the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, divides joint and marrow. It penetrates the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We have been given weapons that can be victorious, but it's not going to happen just by determining this is the fight we're going to fight. We got to be prayed up. We got to be in the word. We got to be people who are full of the Holy Spirit so we can discern which piece of this do we need to wield at a given moment because there's going to be times when we need to stand up for truth and we need to draw a line and we need to say no this is wrong and this is what the bible says and we're not going to back down but there's also going to be times when we need to give people grace and room to struggle and we need to love them right where they're at and and we need to man give some patience because it's not us who's going to change them it's the holy spirit who's going to change them how can we possibly know all that only by the Spirit of God, only by his wisdom, not our own. And, and so I, I think we've got to be really, really clear about this, man. Pastor J.D. Greer, pastor in North Carolina, he puts it this way. He says, it's possible to love someone and treat her or him with respect, dignity, and honor, even while disagreeing with their convictions. We can't buy into the lie of the world that disagreeing with somebody means we hate them, we're phobic of them. Man, that, that, that's, is, is it possible to disagree with them and hate them and be phobic of them? Yes. Are there some Christians who do that? Yes. Please don't let me set that aside either. Man, but, but it doesn't mean we have to. It is possible for us to love them. In fact, I believe you can't be fully gracious without fully being truthful. And so we've got to have both. 
So we're not going to believe the lie of the world, the lie of the enemy, that we have to choose one or the other. We're going to pursue both. Does that mean we're going to hit both all the time? No, because we're fallen. We're broken. None of us walks 100% according to the Spirit, so we're going to miss the mark at times. But we need to be clear about what the mark is. What is the goal? What are we pursuing? We're pursuing full grace and full truth, not partial of either. I hope that makes sense. Does that answer the question? Probably not, but we'll unpack some more as we go, I believe. Uh, Question two is a two-part question. We'll start with the first part. Does my sexuality matter at the church? See, when I first started doing these series, uh, it was mostly geared to what do you deal with at work? What do you deal with at school, right? When these questions came in about sexuality, man, we first started doing this series, transgender wasn't even a thing. Like, it wasn't talked about. There was nobody in the church asking questions about transgender. We're going to get some of those questions today. Um, but we did have questions about homosexuality. And, and the questions were always, well, I've got a friend, right? I, I work with somebody. I go to school with somebody. It was always out there. These questions aren't just out there anymore. These impact and affect the people of God. These impact and affect the, the, the people in this church. I sat down in a group of about eight people a few weeks ago, and, and one of them brought up some transgender challenges that, that one of their kids was having. And turned out out of that group of eight people, three of them had it going on in their family. We're talking about people in the church who don't know, how do I respond to, to my child, to my grandchild, to this person that I love? So, so this isn't just an outside issue anymore. These are, these are inside issues. Does your sexuality matter at the church? Um, so this person who asked this question, I would say this. I would say, yes, your sexuality matters because we want you to live out God's very best for your life. And in the same way that any of our behaviors matter, any of our habits matter, in any of the, the, the things that we do, the things that we watch, the things we consume, the, the way that we speak, all that stuff matters. Why? Because we want to live out God's very best. We don't want to settle for second best. We don't want to settle for mediocre. We don't want to settle for, for a life that Jesus paid for us to walk in freedom, but we've chosen to settle for something less than freedom. So does it matter? Yes, it matters. First Timothy 1, 9 through 11 puts it this way. It says, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. You can go into a list uh, of sin. For the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars, and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. In other words, this is not a list of comparable sins. It's not that, hey, if you're homosexual, it's as bad as being a slave trader, or if you're a liar, it's as bad as being sexually immoral. Um, He's not trying to put everything on the same level. He's saying anything that separates us from God is an issue, okay? Anything that that, that is less than God's best, we're going to speak to it, and we're going to speak into it. Uh, And so, yes, it matters, Let me go to the second part of the question to get to the really addressing this person. The next question is this, would I feel judged by people if I told them? The implication here is this is a person whose sexuality is not heterosexual. Bisexual, lesbian, homosexual, whatever category this person doesn't say, but the implication is this person feels like I have some attraction that's not to the opposite sex. Um, Would I feel judged by other people if I told them that I was going through this? Here's what I would say to that part of this question. I can't say how you would feel. Everybody's feelings in different situations are different. We all have different traumas, different prior experiences and feelings that we bring into situations. And so two people can be treated the exact same way and feel differently about how they're treated. So I'm not going to sit here and say how you would feel. I don't know that. Here's what I would say, though. You are free to struggle here. This is not a church where if you have same-sex attraction, you're not welcome here. 
If you hear that in today's message, it's not what I'm saying. You are absolutely welcome here. You need to be here. We want you here. We love you right where you're at. We serve a God who accepts us to change us. He does not change us to accept us. Please understand the order. He accepts us in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our struggle, in our weakness, and he has, starts this process with the Holy Spirit in us to make us like Jesus. He does not say, you've got to get it together, and once you get it together, now you can come be one of mine. If he did, none of us would be here. None of us has it together when we come to Jesus, and the reality is none of us has it together even though we came to Jesus 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 60 years ago, right? Like we're still pursuing, we're still walking out that process of sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus. So your sin does not disqualify you from being part of our church. Your sin does not mean that, that we don't love you, that we're not here for you, that you're not welcome here. And, and for some of you, you may not feel comfortable with that. Like, hey, I want a church that is going to draw the line. And if that's, th this isn't the church for you. We love people. We love people no matter what their struggle is, no matter what their past is, no matter what their current status is, we love people. Why? Because we serve a God who loves people. We serve a Savior who died for broken people, who died for weak people, who died for sinful people, who died for me. Praise God he did. So whoever you are who asked this very delicate very honest and transparent question. I need you to know today we love you. I need you to know today God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. And we do not expect you to snap your fingers and suddenly never deal with an issue that you've dealt with for weeks, months, years, decades, whatever it might be. What we do ask is that if you're going to call yourself a believer in Jesus that you will yield to his authority and his lordship and say, God, I know there's some stuff in me that isn't what you designed for me, and I'm going to pursue your best. Doesn't mean you're instantly going to walk in it. Doesn't mean you're, you're never going to have that temptation or that struggle. Again, none of us are at that place with all of our different struggles and weaknesses. But it means, God, I'm going to choose to believe you for freedom. I'm going to choose to believe you that you've got something different for me that this is not your best. If you're willing to do that, we're willing to walk on that journey with you. Um, I, I would say this. I can't say if you're going to feel judged. I want to empower our people who are not dealing with this. We got to be a judgment-free zone. We, we got to love people where they're at, okay? That, now, judgment-free doesn't mean that we never take a stand for what's right. There's a difference between judgment and, and conviction. Um, and we're going to speak the truth, but we're going to speak it in love, we're going to speak it in grace, and then we're going to be patient with people wherever they're at, understanding all of us are on a different journey and all of us have different, different paces and different weaknesses that we're dealing with. And so we're not going to treat this weakness as the unpardonable sin because the Bible doesn't treat this weakness as an unpardonable sin. I'll show you that in a little bit. Um, question number three. Is it more important to show the love and grace of Jesus to homosexuals or to guide them towards a more godly lifestyle? Which one's more important? To that question, I would say simply, yes. <laughs> yes. It's more important to show love and grace to homosexuals, and it's more important to help guide them to a more Christ-like lifestyle. This is, again, a false dichotomy that our culture has tried to present to us, that we have to choose one or the other. We're going to stand for truth, or we're going to stand for love, and I reject that dichotomy. And I'm not trying to put down who asked this question, because I understand it's an important question. I'm just saying we don't find Jesus choosing one or the other. Let me illustrate that for you very quickly. There's a story in the book of John uh, where Jesus... Is, is brought a woman who's been caught in adultery. And these people who bring this woman caught in adultery, these religious leaders, they say, hey, Jesus, the Bible, the law, Moses tells us that we're supposed to stone this woman. What do you say? And Jesus presented with this exact dichotomy. Are you going to be loving and gracious? Or are you going to stand for the word? You know what Jesus did? He did both. He walked in both. He chose both. 
He stoops down, he starts writing something on the ground. We don't know what it is, some Bible scholars believe, and I love this idea. He starts writing down the sins of the men who are present. He starts writing something down, and as he writes them down, they start walking away. And Jesus looks at this woman, and now it's just him and her, and he asks her a question. He says, woman, are, are any of your accusers left? And she says, no, sir, they're gone. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. He walked in grace. I'm not going to apply the law to you. The law says rightfully adultery and affair is a capital offense. We serve a God who takes sin seriously. We serve a God who sees sin as a major issue. Sin was such a big issue that his son had to die to pay the price for it. We cannot wink at sin. We cannot look the other way at sin. We cannot act like sin is NBD because it's a very BD, okay? Some of you just rolled your eyes and some of you are confused. It's a very big deal. Sorry. Um, <laughs> spell it out. Spoke Gen Z on you for a second. I apologize. Um, you're like, he's been youth pastor too long. All right. So... Um, <laughs> Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he also doesn't stop there. The story doesn't end with this girl not paying the price for her sin. The story ends with Jesus saying, now go and sin no more. Fully grace. Paid the price for her sin. To not allow her sin to be the end of her. To not allow her sin to sever relationship with him. To prevent her from having fellowship but he also said, I got a better way. You know that life that you've been living is empty. You know that life that you've been living. It doesn't take you anywhere productive. Choose something better. I have something better for you. I have freedom for you. I have a purpose for you. I have a call for you. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus didn't choose the false dichotomy. He chose both. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. The Apostle Paul says, instead, speaking the truth in love, right? So we can call it grace or truth. We can call it love or truth, whichever one you want. But again, the Bible combines them. It doesn't separate them. Speaking the truth in love will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head. That's Jesus. When we speak the truth in love, we become more like him. And so we've got to speak it in love. So... How do we know if we're speaking the truth in love? This is where we ought to do the hard work of examining our own heart. When I was in high school, started a job. Many of you know, I worked at Taco Bell. I made thousands of tacos and burritos, okay? Worked there for four years. When I started, the general manager who hired me was gay. There were three other gay employees. Um, and there were a number of other people who worked there who were just very, very far from God. And about two weeks in, I found myself very, very disturbed by the homosexuals that I was working with. I remember cleaning the bathroom and being afraid that somebody's gonna bust in the bathroom and something's gonna happen. Like, I'm just being real and honest, PG-13, right? Um, and I remember one morning as I was getting ready for work on a Saturday, the conviction of God hit me. And he said, why are you so upset about these three gay men that you work with, but it doesn't bother you, all these other people you work with who are living with their girlfriends and boyfriends? And so God had to deal with my heart that I was treating sin differently, that somehow there were, there were classes of sin. I was comfortable with this sin over here because I could understand it, but I was uncomfortable with this sin over here because it didn't make sense to me. And so I think one of the first things we have to do is we got to check our own heart. Doesn't mean we don't stand for what's right. Doesn't mean we don't stand for truth. But we better know why we're standing for truth. It better be because we love that person and we don't want to see destruction in their life that sin brings. It better be because we want what's best for them, not because we think we're better than them, not because we're holier than they are, not because somehow we're, we're grossed out by what they do, but not the issues that we have. Doesn't mean we don't stand for what's right. But it first starts here. What's the Bible say? It says Bible, the judgment starts with the house of God. 
Chronicles famously says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I heal from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Well, we, we, we throw that verse around a lot, especially for like National Day of Prayer and stuff, and it's an awesome verse, but you know what it starts with? That verse doesn't start with prayer. If my people who are called by my name, that means Christians, will humble themselves. We want to see an impact on the culture around us? Doesn't start with taking a stand. Doesn't start with drawing a line. Doesn't start with making sure that we're speaking truth out into the abyss. What's it start with? It starts with humbling ourselves. When the church, when God's people will humble ourselves, will acknowledge we got junk we're dealing with too. We got stuff that doesn't look like Jesus too. We got habits and addictions and bondage and stuff that doesn't sound like the word of God too. When we'll humble ourselves, then God will start a movement in our city, in our nation, in our land. But not until. When we stand on our holy hill, when, when we look down on the culture around us, we have completely neutered the power of God to move in our nation. So it starts with humility. It starts with examining our heart. Why does this bother me? Why do I get so upset by this? Why do I want to take a stand on this? Until we deal with that, we're never going to see things begin to turn. But if God's people, who are called by his name, will humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, not turn the culture from its wicked ways. If we'll turn from our wicked ways, then God will heal from heaven. Then he will forgive our sins. Then he will heal our land. There is a recipe for God to fix what's going on in our culture, but the recipe starts with us, not with anybody out there. Question four, is homosexuality really a sin? If it is a sin, we put that fourth question up there for us, please. If it is a sin, why do alcoholics not receive the same type of contempt that homosexuals do from the church? Um, so two-part question here again. Um, the first question is, is, is it really a sin? The person who sent this question in sent a leak to an article that uh, deals with it. There are seven passages in scripture that deal with homosexuality. And this article basically made the argument that those passages have been translated incorrectly, that they're not talking about homosexuality the way that we would perceive it, um, and that homosexuality is not really a sin. That essentially the, the church for 2,000 years, 3,000 years going back to Israel, has, has persecuted homosexuals unjustly, um, and, and that we're wrong on this. It's not really a sin. Um, I do... 100% believe that homosexuality is a sin. Based on those seven passages, um, one of the things that we see with this issue over the last 40, 50, 60 years is they want to redefine a lot of things. Um, in that time period is this homosexual movement, LGBTQ movement, whatever you want to call it, um, has risen up in the culture, in our country, and other countries. Lots of things have been redefined. Love has been redefined. Hate has been redefined. Fear has been redefined. Marriage has been redefined. Men have been redefined. Women have been redefined. They're now redefining genocide to apply to people who stand up and say that transgender is wrong. Lots of things have been redefined. So naturally, they're also trying to redefine scripture. Um, I, I don't believe that there's interpretations are accurate to say that the Bible's been interpreted wrong. I think that's a, an untrue thing. Uh, not just because of those seven scriptures, but I think if we look at just the nature of God's design and what the rest of the Bible teaches about gender, about men and women, that we're designed to, to reflect Jesus in marriage. Marriage is supposed to be a portrait of Jesus that men and women are we're equal, but we're not the same. God has given unique roles and responsibilities and giftings to men and unique roles, responsibilities, and giftings to women, uh, and, and that's the way God designed it. And so when we try to wipe out one of those and eliminate the need for one of those, I, I don't think that's biblical. Even if the Bible didn't have anything to say about homosexuality, I would, in reading scripture, 
think we could interpret that it's not God's design and God's best. But the Bible does have things to say about homosexuality. Um, the second question here is this. Uh, is Why is it treated differently than alcoholism? Than, uh, the, the, the common one right now in the culture is why... We got, we got churches full of guys who are addicted to pornography, and nobody cares about that, but where we got issues with, with homosexuality. Um, comparison I've always made is to, to a thief, to stealing. Um, so if it's a sin, why does it not receive the same type of contempt? I think there's two reasons. Um, the, the first reason is this, is that we tend to have a problem who sin differently than we do. That's why we got to check our heart. Uh, we, we, we tend to excuse the sin that we deal with. So if you deal with alcoholism, cheers to the other guy who's alcoholic, right? If you deal with gossip, you like being around other gossips. Uh, the, we, we, we lower the standard. We justify our own sin and excuse our own sin. And so when we see it in other people, we justify it in them as well. But when it's a different sin, well, I don't deal with that. I don't struggle with that. I don't have a problem with that. Now we get upset. We do this a lot in, in all kinds of human relationships too, don't we? That, man, when, when somebody doesn't respond in a situation we do, we get really upset. Well, I would never do that. Like we hold people to the standard of us. Can I just be real? I am not the standard. You are not the standard. Jesus is the standard. So just because I don't struggle with something or I do struggle with something doesn't mean anything for anybody else's life. Does Jesus struggle with that? Is that a problem to Jesus? That's the standard. That's what we live up to. Um, and so one of the problems is with us, is with the church. And the church needs to check our heart. We need to examine our heart. We need to make sure that we're not holding people to a different standard than us just because we don't struggle with that. For me, alcoholism is a pretty pertinent example uh, because I grew up in a family of alcoholics. My dad was an alcoholic for years. Both of my brothers, to my knowledge, are very severe alcoholics right now. Um, I've seen alcoholism and the destruction that it brings. Uh, and so for me, I don't have a lower bar on alcoholism. For me, alcoholism is a big issue. Uh, for, for me, I think alcoholism is a massive problem, uh, so much so that I don't drink. Uh, because I know that I've got a, a proclivity towards that, that I was probably born with a weakness for alcoholism. I have an addictive personality. Self-control is not my greatest strength. Uh, and, and so if I were to partake, I could end up in that place probably very easily. And so I recognize that, and I stay as far away from it as I can. Uh, so if people treat alcoholism different from homosexuality, it's because we're making excuses for alcoholism means we've lowered the bar for one, and so what we don't do is now lower the bar for the other. We raise the bar for the one. You see what I'm saying? It's not that, hey, well, I don't care about alcoholism, so I'm not going to care about homosexuality either. It's, well, I care about homosexuality, but I don't care about alcoholism. I should probably get more serious about alcoholism because Jesus cares about alcoholism because Jesus doesn't want us to be, to be bound. Jesus wants us to be free. Jesus wants us to have a sober mind to be able to make the right decisions, and so I need to care about this thing that Jesus cares about. But we've got to check our heart. The second reason is this. Homosexuality is just a completely different package than most other sin because homosexuality oftentimes impacts identity. This is where I'll use the illustration of a thief. If, if, you're, a, if you're a klepto, if you like a good five-finger discount, uh, and, and <laughs> you make and justify reasons for helping yourself to things that are not yours, you probably don't identify yourself as a thief. It's probably not your status on your social media. It probably doesn't determine what kind of church you go to, what kind of bars you go to, what kind of relationships you have, right? It's, it's a piece of your life that probably remains kind of hidden, but it's not the foundation of your core. We could use any other illustration of this, um, any sort of sin. The reason why homosexuality is so destructive is not because it's somehow worse than any other sin. Every sin separates us from God. Every sin is a sin that Jesus had to lay down his life for. So homosexuality is not somehow this worse sin. It's just more destructive. And the reason it's more destructive is because it feeds lies to your identity. The most important thing that we can do once we come to Jesus is begin to see ourselves as Jesus does. 
And in homosexuality, the enemy has created a lie that for many, if they receive it, it prevents them from seeing what Jesus sees. We begin to define ourselves differently. We could also apply this to transgender. Um, we, we could apply this to a few other categories that are, that are newer in our society. Um, and so why does the church stand up so strongly against homosexuality? This is where I will cape up for the church. This is where I'll defend the church. Because with alcoholism, with stealing, with insert other sin here, we don't have Alcoholics Pride Month. We don't fly alcoholics, pride flags. It, it's not a sin that presents itself as you've got to acknowledge me and accept me and affirm me. There's a recognition even in our culture that alcoholism is not a great thing. There are a lot of people who are alcoholics and who aren't dealing with it, but it's not something that anybody's just really proud of. They might be proud of how much they drink, but they're not proud of the fact that they're addicted to alcohol. You see what I'm saying? And so homosexuality has come in with a sin that not only does it separate us from God because I partake in it, but now it actually affects the way I see myself and the way I define the relationships around me. And that's why it's so destructive. It affects the way you see yourself and it presents an inability to see yourself the way that Jesus sees you. And that's a really significant, hard thing to get over. That's why it's so powerful. It's not that it's more sinful, but it is more destructive because it's much harder to, to set somebody free from an identity issue than it is just from a sin issue. Because we have to completely renew your mind. We have to begin to, to see something that is contrary to what you've seen, to what other people have affirmed in you, to what other people have celebrated for you. And so I think that's why... It's destructive. We could do the same thing with the, the pornography issue. Well, how come churches have men who, who have issues with pornography, but we talk more about homosexuality? First, I don't think we talk more about homosexuality. We talk about homosexuality very, very little. Um, this isn't a flag that we fly. This isn't like a thing that defines our church. Flag might be the wrong illustration there. You know what I mean. Um, this isn't something that's like the foundational core of who we are as a church, okay? Um, but why, why did the church in general take a bigger stance against this than against pornography, which probably affects more people? Um, one, I think we should probably talk more about pornography. But two, uh, again, PG-13 warning. Uh, but, but two, I've never talked with a guy who was addicted to porn, who was confessing, who said, I want you to tell me it's okay, Pastor Troy. I've never spoken to somebody who had a porn addiction who was like, I, I, I want to make sure that the church celebrates this and affirms this. I've never had that conversation. Everybody knows it's wrong. Everybody accepts that it's wrong. Doesn't mean we're not struggling with it. Doesn't mean it's not an issue that needs to be dealt with. It absolutely does. But why do we treat these things differently? Because culture is not presenting, hey, church, you need to embrace everybody who's got a pornography addiction and tell them it's okay and they don't need to change. But culture is telling us we need to celebrate LGBTQ issues and tell them they're exactly who they need to be. This is the way God designed them. This is who God made them to be, and we're going to celebrate them because they were born this way. It's a different response because it's a different attack. Does that make sense? Question five, we're running out of time. We've got a lot of way to go, so let's keep moving. Does the trans, right movement, trans rights movement go against the will of God? Transition to transitioning? Um, Short answer, yes, I believe the trans movement goes against the will of God. Uh, again, we, we've got to make sure that we respond in all of these things in grace and truth. In other words, if you're wrestling with your gender identity right now, this does not mean that, that you are demonic. This does not mean that, that you are unwelcome, that, that you are satanic. That, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. Okay, it's an issue, and it needs to. We're going to speak truth into that issue, but this is not the defining issue of life. That's where I think the the culture culture wants to make it the defining issue of life. I don't think it has to be. Um, why do I think that the trans movement is contrary to the will of God? Well, let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter one. 
creation. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but in creation story, verse 26 says, God said, let us make mankind in his own image. So it's the Trinity speaking to one another in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 27, so God created mankind, men and women, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female he created them. At the very beginning, we see that gender was part of God's design. I'm talking about the first chapter, the first people who were created. God created them in his image. So males are created in his image. Females are created in his image. He chose and created us with gender. And so the movement, and, and again, we, I think we got to separate the movement from the individuals. In other words, on an individual level, we extend grace, we love them, we come alongside them, we're patient with them, we walk with them, and so if you're dealing with this, we, we, that's, our, that's our response to you. When we're talking about the movement in the culture, I think the movement is wrong. I do think the movement is demonic in origin because I think it's massively destructive. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, it, it rots the core of who people are. Right before this passage, we see the first command. The first command is to be fruitful and multiply. Both of these issues, homosexuality and transgenderism, have in their commonality that if you go to the end that the enemy wants you to go to, you can't reproduce. It's impossible. If you medically transition, if you partner with someone of the same gender, you can't reproduce the way God has, has designed for it to happen. Does that mean that nobody, who, if you don't reproduce, that you're outside of God's will? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying it's, it, it is an end that the enemy is pursuing in all of this. Um, the movement that really bothers me is not so much adults who make their own decisions. I think that I, I lean libertarian uh, a little bit. Man, I, I think people should be able to choose. I think God is a God who gave us choice. And I don't think it's our job to make decisions for people. I don't think we need to legislate morality. I don't think it works. The only thing that works to to impact morality is heart change through the Holy Spirit. And so making a bunch of laws to say, hey, you can't do this or you can't do this, to me, I I don't think it's very effective. Um, I, I think those are losing battles. I don't think those are the battles that the church all the time needs to engage in. I think there are exceptions. I think abortion is an exception because there's human life on the line um, that that's a non-consenting individual. But I think consenting adults, if people want to choose sin, Jesus allows them to choose sin. The church should allow them to choose something other than God's best. But when it comes to the movement right now for kids, uh, we, we see schools that are helping kids transition behind their parents' back. We see doctors who want to medically inhibit puberty, um, castrate children, I think that stuff's just blatantly wrong. Um, if as an adult somebody wants to make that decision, that's their decision. You can do what you want with your body. But for us to allow that to happen to kids, I think is a line we got to draw. Um, that that's a fight we got to have. And if that makes us bigoted, if that makes us irrelevant, if that makes us outcasts, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. So hate me. If that's, if that's what you got to do. It's not because I hate you, it's because I love you and I love your kid and I care about your kid and I don't want to see something happen to them that's irreversible, which we're seeing all kinds of people now who want to detransition, who have gone through the transition and they realize that wasn't really what was wrong. That didn't really fix the problem, that just created a whole other patch of problems that are now, many of them, unfixable. And so I don't think that's of God, I think it's super destructive. I think it's super harmful, and, and I think that we love people even if they're going through that. We love parents even if they're allowing that to happen to their kid, but I don't think that means we have to just sit down and shut up and not stand up and say, hey, I think there's a better way than this. Um, I think we can speak into that. Whew. Two more questions to go. I'm way over. Sorry. Question six. Would God still love me because of my sexuality? I would say this, God doesn't love you because of your sexuality. He doesn't love me because of my sexuality. Your sexuality has nothing to do with God's love for you. God loves you. Babies aren't born sexual beings, by the way. 
We, we can argue, hey, people are born this, born that. Babies aren't born sexual beings. That's why a, a mother can nurse their child, and it's not weird. Uh, it's not wrong. Because we're not sexual at birth. Sexuality doesn't kick in until puberty. It comes on later in life. And a lot of things can happen to skew sexuality, to, to take it in a direction other than God's design. Um, so, so God loved you before you were a sexual being. God loved you before you were attracted to anybody. Male, female, binary, non-binary, whatever. God loves you before sexuality was a thing. And his love for you doesn't change whichever sexuality you choose to pursue. He loves you desperately, madly, fervently, passionately, fully and completely. He loves you. And so do we. We love you. Your, your sexuality does not determine God's love for you. Um, regardless if you're choosing God's best right now or you have a challenge in this area, God loves you and the church loves you. We are for you. We are not against you. We, we, we want to see you walking in freedom and God's very best for your life. And we believe that that can happen. Final question here. If I like girls and guys, will I go to heaven? Bisexual question. If I like girls and I like guys, can I still go to heaven? My answer to that is this. Maybe. See, the question of eternity is not who did you like? The question of eternity is not who are you attracted to? The question of eternity is not who were you into? The question of eternity is this, is Jesus Christ your Lord? So are there people who like guys and girls who have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and they will be in heaven? Absolutely. 100% without question, there are people who have attraction to both genders who cross the line of salvation and spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Absolutely. I can't answer that for you because I don't know you. I don't know who you are and what decisions you've made. The question is, have you submitted to Jesus' lordship in your life? Have you chosen to allow him to be the authority, to be the king, to be the one who you pursue his best for your life. If you have, then yes. But it also means that it's going to affect what you do with those attractions. Doesn't mean those attractions are necessarily going to go away. All of us have temptations. Jesus was tempted, by the way. So being tempted does not disqualify you from being with Jesus. Jesus was tempted. It just makes you human. What do you do with your temptation? How do you act on that temptation? Um, and if you act wrongly on that temptation, are you remorseful? Do you confess? Do you repent and give that to Jesus? Or do you say, hey, this is the way I'm going to be, and this is who I am, and everybody else is just going to have to deal with it? Because that's a rebellious attitude. That's not the attitude of someone who's submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Romans 10.9 says this. We quote this almost every week here, but I want you to see it. It says, if you declare with your mouth or confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus has to be Lord, King, authority, supreme, in charge, the one we submit to. It doesn't say if you have attraction to the right gender, you will be saved. It doesn't say if you have the right gender identity, you will be saved. See, the mistake that the church can make here is we fight so hard against homosexuality or fight so hard against transgenderism, and we win, but we still don't bring people to Jesus. You see, getting someone to be straight does not get somebody to heaven. Giving someone to embrace the gender identity of their birth does not get them to heaven. Only Jesus Christ gets them to heaven. And if we focus so much on the fight for their gender and so much on the fight for their sexuality and we forget to introduce them to their Savior, we've done nothing for them. The lordship of Jesus is what saves. The lordship of Jesus is what penetrates the heart and mind. The lordship of Jesus is what sets the captives free, not choosing the right gender or the right sexuality. It's the Holy Spirit who brings life change. And you don't have the Holy Spirit until you accept Jesus. And so the fight on the front end for someone who is lost and is homosexual or transgender, the fight is not against their gender and it's not against their, their sexuality. The fight is against their lostness. 
The fight is to bring them to Jesus. Now once we brought them to Jesus and they have the Holy Spirit, now it's possible for them to get set free. Now, now we can begin to point them to freedom. Now the Holy Spirit's gonna convict them of sin and point them to something better God has for them. But without the Holy Spirit, we're fighting a losing battle. Let me close with this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. We put that verse up there for us. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, uh, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's got a whole list again, just like in 1 Timothy. It includes in this passage homosexual offenders, male prostitutes. It says none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. That sounds very condemning and very negative. If we stop there, I think we miss it because the verse... The, the passage doesn't stop there. Look at verse 11. Here's the hope. And that is what some of you were. That's what you were. You see, every sinful past will be represented in heaven. Every demonic bondage will be represented in heaven. Every bad habit, every addiction, every failure, every weakness, every brokenness will be represented in heaven. Why? Because Jesus still saves. Because Jesus still sets free. Because the way Paul puts it here, Jesus still washes. He still sanctifies. He still justifies in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sexuality is not the unpardonable sin. Transgenderism is not the unpardonable sin. We serve a God who saves, a God who forgives, a God who sets free, a God who restores. I left this out, and I want to make sure I get this in. I know this is really late, but just to relate on the, the transgender issue very, very quickly. I have a cousin, actually my mom's cousin, so she's older, who was born... Uh, hermaphrodite. She was born with male parts and female parts. And at birth, her parents had to make the impossible decision. Is your child a boy or a girl? And they chose for her to be a girl. Um, and she's lived her entire life as a female. If she came out tomorrow and said, I feel like I'm a man and not a woman, I wouldn't have anything to say to her except, cool. She was born in a situation with hormones for both. If she experiences some gender confusion, I think there's got to be massive grace for that. There is a small percentage of the population, that's what's called intersex, uh, usually somewhere around 0.2% of the population, most studies show, far less than what we see of people who are embracing transgenderism. It's a very, very small percentage of that. But for people in that category, I don't think it's our right to tell them who they are. Um, that's not the majority of people who are right now coming out. That's not the majority of the movement. Um, if somebody in that category said, hey, I think I'm the other, and, and if they wanted to go back, I think you just got to give them room to sort that out because that's the brokenness of our world, right? That's not God's design. That's not God's best. God did not do that to my mom's cousin. That's the, the brokenness of our genetic code because of the fall of man, that things have corrupted, things have mutated, things have gone the ways, away from what God's design. And, and I say that to say this, we've got to respond to people with grace. We stand up for truth with the issue. We, we can't water out down the word of God. But for me, ministry, church, Christianity is about relationships it's about loving people to God's best. Um, and so we got to make sure that, that we're responding to broken people with grace because we're all broken people, um, that we recognize where they're at. So I know I went crazy long, and I apologize, but this is not an issue that you can summarize in 20 minutes. So thank you for your grace with me this morning. Let's pray. Father God.